Welcome to the 108th episode of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And uh, if you have any questions or comments for us, you can always leave them on Podbean in our comments section, and we'll get to those. Or you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. That is kbmakel at aol.com. And I'm happy to answer them. I'll well, put them in the uh, uh, notes for the next podcast, and we will get to them. You know, we break this into three kind of three sections. One is kind of news that that concerns the Second Amendment, and you know, maybe a few general things. Um, the other is any kind of comment we have on what the content creators in the kind of the gun media have put out. And last podcast, we kind of went over Firearms Journal. They had that was really kind of a very fun issue. You know, I, I mean, it's hard to write something as as one author. I forget which one stated, you know, every book has mistakes, you know, every article has mistakes, so you can't admit some of those might be mistakes by omission, so you can't really go through and, and uh, judge it too harshly because it's, it's a lot of work writing an article. I've, I've written articles and uh, they are definitely a lot of work and it's very easy to omit something or flat out just make a mistake and you know very few of us have any kind of uh, access to editing services so um, it's you know it's it's a daunting task so I, I my hats off to them and I thought firearms journal did a good job covered some very interesting guns um, from the 1950s all the way up to you know the 1980s so go back and listen to that podcast if you want to see which ones they were but I thought they're pretty darn good the last part of the podcast is, of course, my favorite, and that is questions and answers. And I glean these from everywhere. I, I don't have a single account or single source that I get these from. A lot of times it's because people know me as kind of the gun guy at work or in the social circles I travel in. And, um, you know, so I get asked a lot of questions. And, uh, um, you know, without attributing any names to them, I will go ahead and use them uh, the, the questions because I think a lot of them are interesting and other people have the same information and if you're listening to this podcast you probably um, are at least somewhat interested in what I have to say about them so I will go ahead and answer them as I glean them from from my various sources well I've been trying to stay away from politics because frankly it is such a morass of absolute it's it's uh, comic opera Washington DC is just comic opera and um, so in 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 the uh, basically in trying to keep up with at least a fun pun um, if you suffered through high school English class you probably had to read something from Nathaniel West called the day of the locust and it was about how basically kind of debauched and and you know, horrible that the back scenes of Hollywood really were. You know, it was beyond the glamour and all that. It was kind of a very, very gritty kind of kind of uh, crummy place. So you know, that was called the Day of the Locust. Well, I think in Washington you could write the same the same sort of story, and and but now it would have to be called the Day of the Wokest because they all want to be woke. So it's Day of the Wokest. 
And we see this, something that really is, is amazing is that the fact of the matter is we've lost in Afghanistan. And we've lost big. I mean, literally, the Taliban is dancing on the airfield at Bagram. Uh, left so fast that there was a, there's pictures they they left all the candy bars and cokes and all that stuff in the snack bars and the the little uh, PX post exchanges and all that they had there. They just pulled out, just like the Soviets did in 19 was it 89? Yeah, 88 or 89. When they just, you know, packed what they could and just headed back over the border. Well, we did the same thing. We packed what we could and we flew it out of the country. And so now a bunch of those disgusting people are, you know, filling themselves with uh, Kit Kat bars and Reese's peanut butter cups and all the rest of this nonsense that we've left behind. As a matter of fact, uh, one thing that didn't get much coverage was they had to launch an airstrike to destroy... A bunch of the equipment that the Taliban has captured from uh, the Afghan army. They captured so much of it that figured better go in and destroy it. At least we can't get it back to the Af to the Afghan army, but at least we can keep them, the Taliban, from using it. This hadn't happened since like 1975, when you know. And I thought we had a, some kind of peace deal with this Taliban. You know, it's it's the same thing as the Vietnam. 1975, we thought, you know, we had this deal. I think it was in 73, we struck a deal, pulled out. All that did was give the North Vietnamese time to position their forces and reinforce everything. Then in 1975, they went over the border and in a matter of weeks, took over South Vietnam. This is the same thing. We, we kind of, I knew that we were in trouble whenever we were starting to talk peace deal with the Taliban. You just, you can't talk peace with them. And, you know, this is where Trump had it right and Biden had it wrong. And Biden has a lot of things wrong because he's a senile old man and senile people can't make rational decisions. So, you know, Trump had it right because he said if the conditions merit it, then we pull out. And if we can never get to those conditions, we have to have some residual force in place to keep that to keep that whole country from falling back into the freaking terrorist stronghold it was uh, pre-2001. I mean, it's just the way it goes. There are some countries that cannot rule themselves. They can't self-govern. There is no such thing as Afghanistan national pride or unity. Uh, it's all about separate tribes. They're living in a century that we don't understand. We don't understand how they live. And that's just the way that goes. Um, so it needed to be, you know, you hate to go back a hundred years, but it needs to be a UN mandate. And maybe there's a rotating UN force in there that kind of keeps the peace and is engaged in, in some, uh, you know, level of, of counterinsurgency or low, low intensity conflict. But basically they keep, that's enough stability so that a terrorist organization can't take the place over. So... All those opportunities have been blown because everybody has to rule themselves, even if they're completely incapable of it. You know, Somalia, completely incapable of ruling themselves. Uh, you could look at the Sudan. I think that's probably another case. Um, you know, who knows? It's, it's definitely, we have these trouble spots. 
and we go in for a time and want to try to fix everything and you, there are some of these things you cannot fix you cannot make them cannot make them better so in the day of the wokest in Washington uh, we have woke generals who are more they have more in common with Corporal Emma than they do with Audie Murphy I mean we I thought we paid generals to win wars. I mean, I thought that's what a general does. He he basically is the the top guy who you can go to and say, we want to achieve this victory. And he will go out and get it for you. I don't think that the kind of generalship we've seen in Afghanistan, and we've lost, what, 5,000 troops there? For nothing. It's going to turn out to be for nothing. Again again so while they're making their corporal emma commercials and worried about whether she has two mommies and if blm protesters maybe they make you know they can be soldiers too you know rather than doing all that woke trash maybe they should be figuring out how to win a war which is what we pay them to do what we train them to do um you know, we just don't pay them to give them gigas that they wear on their shoulders and, and medals and things like that. We pay them to win wars. I don't think General Patton would be okay with this pullout. I don't even think Dwight D. Eisenhower would be good with this. Generals who want to fight, fight. And uh, we don't have generals that want to fight. We have corporate businessmen who want to advance their own self, their own career, and collect the big fat retirement at the end of the rainbow. Um, we've lost the warrior ethos. We've lost all that. And, uh, you know, it's a shame. It's a shame. I, I do believe that there has been some undue political, liberal political influence in the military. You know, they didn't like they saw in 2000 that the military absentee votes basically tilted the critical state, Florida, for George W. Bush away from Albert Gore, okay? They saw that and they didn't like it. They realized most people in the military who vote, vote not the way they do. So they've been on a campaign, a jihad, and it's gays in the military, transsexuals in the military, it's opening everything up to women, it's all of these things that they've been doing that are now um, trying to dilute the military and make it more of an inclusive, diversity, all that kind of garbagey organization, you know, whatever all that is, they want to make it. So that it is not a political factor, so that you won't have a predominant number of people who vote very conservatively coming in. So when military votes come in, they'll break apart across whatever diversity, social engineering spectrum that has been forced upon the military. So that's the day of the wokest. We have just lost a 20-year war, and it's not even getting any coverage in the, uh, the media. And in fact, there was a poll put out saying 55% of the American people are good with it. Well, that's because they really don't have the facts. And because of liberal influence in the media, national pride and things are at an all-time low. Theodore Roosevelt never would have tolerated this. And that whole generation that turned out 
and what was it the West Point class of 1915 or 1916 the one they say that you know the class the stars fell on you know those guys they grew up in a very different America and they knew how to fight they went out they did it we turned out some of the finest general officers in the world we really did and uh, it's a shame that we can't even turn out one today we went from having so many world-class combat leaders in both world wars really um, that today we can't even turn out one that's got general stars on his shoulders and can get out there and win a war they seem much more concerned about not losing and getting through their year or year and a half or two years in control and and basically leaving and then let letting the next guy you know <laughs> see how long he can survive you know that's happened for 20 years it's amazing that right now probably we have soldiers who enlisted right after 9-11 and they're putting in their retirement papers today after a 20-year career that's amazing it's absolutely amazing and it's it's really disheartening our military is now a bunch of high-tech toy playing people and and we could go on through the Air Force through the everything that's happening seems to be happening very strangely we have a Marine Corps that doesn't have tanks anymore they don't have any tanks they don't have any I mean they they gave them up they, they got rid of them and so I, I sit there and go how can a predominantly infantry centric force like Marines not fight with the basic tools that armies need to fight with and one of those are tanks and I don't know I don't know how they're supposed to do it I suppose they can run around and pretend they're ninjas or something and you know do all this ninja training and, and realize how high speed they are but at a certain point it's not going to work and it's not going to be not going to be very pretty military needs a renaissance and you know gradually we're starting to lose our high technology advantage that we've had for so long you know we it's it was always that our our stuff not only was it in the field first but it was you know it was just measurably better than our adversaries measurably better um you know we had we had m16 rifles in 1962 1963 the um, Soviets didn't bring out anything even comparable and it wasn't as good until 1974 the AK-74 I mean we had a almost a 15-year advantage on that and that's just an example not the most important obviously but that's an example of things like night vision all kinds of other weapons that we've introduced that we will have had in our inventory for years when other countries are just beginning to field something that's not as good so we're losing that edge I mean there are new fighters out there that may be giving the F-22 and the F-35 a run for their money and uh, face it for since the Korean War that's never really happened we've always had really really good stuff and it's been better than everybody else's now we're coming up to parity and it doesn't doesn't look or feel very good that brings us to 
just our society in general. Um, you know, there are some cracks in our society that I, I fear cannot be repaired. The vitriolic racist language that's coming out of the left vis-a-vis -vis white privilege, critical race theory, uh, social, they call it social justice. It's, it's a, I, I don't really know what it is other than it's destroying our society. And, you know, everybody thinks, well, it can't happen here. We can't fall apart. Why, you know, we're America. This will never happen here. You know what? It took the old Yugoslavia 10 years from the death of uh, Tito until it broke apart in a civil war. And we may be on that same track. There are very scary possibilities. Crime is now completely epidemic and out of control. And who do the liberals blame? Well, it's gun owners and gun dealers because it's they don't call it violence. They don't call it for the mad dog, vicious violence it is. They just call it gun violence. So if we, the implication is if they can somehow control guns, i.e. keep them away from you, the gun violence will go away. What they don't realize is they're just creating a super pool of victims. And that's what disarming the population will be. And friend of the podcast and I have had this discussion several times. They're never going to stop. So even if you think that giving them semi-autos, military-style semi-autos, is going to satiate them, you're, you're flat wrong. They are going to go after everything until there's not a single firearm left. They're complete prohibitionists, and you can't reason with them. And I say we don't reason with them. There's nothing to reason. There's nothing to compromise. Compromise means we just give up and, and hope that they're happy with it. I don't believe in that. I don't believe they should get a thing. I didn't believe bump stocks should be illegal. I don't believe arm braces should be illegal. I, don't, I believe the Federal Firearms Act of 1934 is completely unconstitutional. Completely. You have the right to keep and bear arms. And nothing in the Constitution gives the government the right to regulate what types of arms those are. It's just that simple. So they always pull out the ridiculous thing. Well, that means if somebody wanted a nuclear bomb, they could have it. Well, no, because that's regulated under other things. Clearly, when they said arms, they were meaning small arms, shoulder arms, man-portable arms. So if you want a Vickers machine gun, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to have one. Uh, as long as you're a law-abiding citizen. That's all. That's just, just that simple. And uh, same thing with a Thompson or anything else. Fully automatic M16. You should be able to have all those things. Without the government regulating or saying what you can have and what you can't have. You can't have a bayonet lug, but you can have this. You can't have a pistol grip, but you can't... You know, on, and their rules, you see how stupid and ill-informed their rules are. It was just a few years ago, I guess it was pre-Trump, when, remember, the, the representative in the House, they were going to have her con... They are going to have her construct and manage the, the gun control bill they were trying to formulate. The Democrats were. And she said, well, it doesn't really... 30-round magazines don't really matter because once people shoot them up, then they'll be gone as if it was a single-load, single-use item. 
she didn't even have the basis of knowledge to understand what it was that she was trying to write a law and regulate. She didn't even have the, the first inkling of knowledge about what that was. And that's, that's what we face up against. Um, you know, it's, there are cracks that cannot be repaired. And, and you see examples of it everywhere. And just some of the small examples are athletes that don't respect the flag. The same flag we have people fighting for. The same flag we cover coffins of our casualties with. They don't want to honor or respect. Now, I don't care what their personal feelings are. We live in a free country. And we live in a place where they can certainly have contrary views but they should put it on Facebook or they can put it on their own website or they can write a paper they can write an op-ed if they can read and write I think most athletes can't really do that very well but they could they could express themselves in a lot of ways other than disrespecting our flag at an international event this is why I root for every country to kick the kick the ass of that stupid women's soccer team that we've put out. They're a disgrace, that Rapino, the rest of them, they're trash, they're filth, they're a disgrace. And every American should be rooting against them. So when they get their asses kicked in the Olympics, you know, they thought they were big stuff when they came back and because they'd won everything and all this. Well, they're, they're not going to come back from the, the Tokyo Olympics, which I call the Jokio Olympics. They're not going to come back from the Jokio Olympics as big shit. They're going to come back as what they are, losers. And they need to be treated like losers. They don't go to the White House. They need to go to the outhouse. <laughs> That's where they need to go. I mean, <clears throat> it's a disgrace when athletes don't honor the flag that that stupid hammer thrower was another one uh, she did it in the the Olympic trials but still it's the same thing it's the same thing you know absolute filth that doesn't need to be there just you know uh, athletes everybody's broken the code on this athletes are jackasses <clears throat> and the Jokio Olympics are just as bad as any any of the other ones you know, this whole thing of my country's won more medals than your country. Well, maybe that's so, but those people come back. They don't do anything except promote themselves. These athletes, they you know, if they win six gold medals, they don't come back and say, America is wonderful, and I was glad I was able to do this for the country. They're just coming. They're coming back to see how great I am. I'm super, I'm super bad. See how great I am. So, you know, I mean, I have no real allegiance to any of them. I think they're they're very bad people um they're they're selfish they're vain they they obviously you know the service the john f kennedy quote you know ask not what your country can do for you but what you can do for your country doesn't seem to really permeate they're just hoping hey man can i run this race fast enough can I do this Olympic sport good enough so that I win a gold medal and then, you know, promote myself? That's that's really all they worry about. And that's part of a larger pop culture complex that involves athletes. 
It involves celebrities. It involves people like even Anthony Fauci tries to be a part of this. Here the country is in a, you know, the middle of the COVID thing. And he's out there like an idiot as an 80-year-old man trying to throw the first pitch at the Washington Nationals Park. And that was last year. I mean, what an idiot. It's like, dude, you're, you're not famous. You're not a celebrity. You're supposed to be an expert. And as we found out, he's a jackass, and he knows nothing. Um, <laughs> he proves a theory I have, which is if you took 10 people off the street almost randomly and replaced, oh, you could replace our current president, vice president, speaker of the house, the uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court, a couple of justices on there, the Sotomayor and Kagan. You could replace the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That those people are so inferior. They're so, I don't even want to say ordinary because it insults ordinary people, but they are such low performers who've managed to claw their way through the bureaucracy and get where they have, whether they've stolen elections or, or uh, worked one way or another. <clears throat> they've managed to get to these high positions that they don't deserve. Their performance doesn't deserve it. You could take almost any probably four-year biology student and replace Dr. Fauci and get a better result by somebody who's just got some common sense and can apply basic scientific principles. Same thing. Milley could be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. That woke idiot could be replaced by a... There are, there are thousands of people who could replace him within the military from the lower ranks. Similarly, our friend of the podcast would do better on the Supreme Court than the Chief Justice or those who is it, Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor. People who have a hard time applying the law in a very basic form, applying the Constitution to the law to see, hey, do these two things match? Really, there are a lot of people <clears throat> who have different experience that could actually perform that analysis and do better than our Supreme Court justices do. So we have, have this pop culture complex where what a very uninformed celebrity thinks gets all, kind of atten all kinds of attention, all kinds of attention. And what people who actually know what they're talking about get ignored, um, that, that celebrity culture has to, has to go. The only way to do this, and this is going to come to an end here in a minute, but you have to start unplugging from some of this and take their power away. Don't go see them in the movies. Don't go watch them on the football or baseball or basketball fields. You know, take away take away from them don't give them your money don't give them your time and um, you know kind of shrink that back to where it needs to be kind of the gossip magazine stage as opposed to you know the the absolute um, 
handing them the microphone and the national stage. These people are handed the national stage and they certainly don't deserve it. They certainly don't. Okay, the, um, the only kind of <clears throat> gun culture commentary I have is, have you seen the way in-range TV has just kind of collapsed? I mean, you know, it, clearly at some point when the Forgotten Weapons Ian McCollum decided not to do the the uh, combined question and answer thing with with the uh, the other guy, what was his name, Corsada, in-range TV just kind of took the absolute dive off a cliff. It fell off a cliff. And now it's trying to establish itself as this kind of, I, I don't want to say non-apolitical, but almost like we'll see left-leaning people can like guns too and that's just very weird i don't to be blunt i don't really watch anything i don't e even his uh, questions and answers are boring so um and actually they're both kind of boring they at least when the two of them were doing it you at least had some some interesting discussion but eh, not so interesting now so uh we'll see how that uh we'll see how that shakes out but i i kind of see that on a big decline and uh Maybe I'm not the only one. Who knows? Okay, after all that fun, let's uh, let's go and do something that is actually interesting and fun and talking about stuff that is really cool, which is, you know, old school guns like we have in this podcast. So our first question in our question and answer segment is a really good one. And uh, I've actually kind of expanded a little bit. But when does a gun become too valuable to carry? If you're a traditionalist, um, you know, and, and over our lifetimes, things change. Um, back in the 1970s, you could buy a Colt Python as a carry gun. I mean, nobody would do that today, really. Unless, of course, you're... Here's the caveat. When does a gun become too valuable is an individual decision based on how wealthy you are or are not. You know, you will find that, that probably most people who are very, very wealthy, and you know, a lot of us, and I'll give you some insight, I've known a couple of very wealthy people in my time. Not that it did me any good, <laughs> but I have known them. And you know, they don't collect normal stuff like we do, because it has no value to them. Um, collecting, collecting stuff is just unless it's one of a kind unless it is exceptionally rare and makes their friends jealous this is why they collect artwork from the old masters um, this is why they collect one-of-a-kind cars you don't see if I collected cars and I put my collection next to Jake Jay Leno they, they would look very different okay because my tastes are a lot more pedestrian and he's he and, and his friends are probably not going to be impressed by with what I collect because it's too common. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just the way it is. That's why you find the top-end collectors want pistols that were owned by Thomas Jefferson or a rifle that was, you know, used by Ulysses S. Grant or something. They would have no real interest in a service-grade... 1911A1 that was you know bought from the CMP they they're not interested in that they would be interested in the 1911A1 carried by Chester Nimitz you know 
so that's that's taking the super rich out of it we're just talking about our normal guys when does a gun become too valuable to collect and there are a couple or not to collect <laughs> to carry to carry 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 um, when does a gun become too valuable to carry and the answer to that is really well when it becomes comes to the point where you cannot or will not replace it because a carry gun just by its own nature is going to be used at least intended for use in your self-defense even though there's only a very remote possibility you would ever have to use it of course you know it's going to get confiscated by the police and it may or may not get returned to you and it probably is not going to get returned to you in the condition that you handed it over to them so if it's a an item that has a collectible this is what i was thinking of earlier when i said gun and put wear on it and and heaven forbid you don't want to have to turn it over to the police after a shooting I can give you two examples of guns that became too valuable for me to carry and they were guns that I carried one was I bought a Walther PPK um, back in the day and it turned out what I actually bought I didn't know much about them I knew they were cool and I knew I liked them and I knew about what they cost but the one I purchased was actually, it was a used gun, and it was actually a PPKL, which meant it had the aluminum frame, which is very, very rare. A post-war gun, very, very rare. So, you know, that gun, after a while, I kind of, when I, once I realized what it was, as I, my gun knowledge increased, I realized it was too valuable to carry. It's just, it, as much as I liked it, as much as if I could have cloned it into something else, and I would have still, I'd carry it to this day. Love the gun. I absolutely love it. Too valuable to, to carry because it would be way far too expensive if I could find another one. And this one's got some, got some cool markings on it and all that. So that, you know, you, I would never find an exact duplicate in the, in the condition that it's in. So therefore too valuable to go. That's it. Another one was back, uh, was it around 2000? I bought a Colt Detective Special 2. Great revolver. Maybe the ultimate snub nose revolver. Maybe the ultimate. Absolutely beautiful gun. Very robust. Really was kind of the pinnacle of a Colt snub nose revolver. Stainless steel, the whole thing. Now those go for a fortune. A lot more than what I paid for it. And I had that on my CCW for a long time. Uh, where I was living, you had to list the guns you carried. Here, where I live now, you just get the CCW. You can carry whatever you want. A much better system, in my opinion. A third gun, not quite as dramatic, but still out there, is for a while on my CCW, I had an Argentine Model 1927, which is a Colt Model 1911A1, completely interchangeable. Colt helped them set it. It's licensed production. It's not just a clone where somebody took 1911s and decided to make them themselves. It was actually licensed production from Colt. Not a terribly rare gun, and they've been imported in 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 scads over the years. You know, they bring in a large importation here and there. Last one I got, I think I paid three hundred dollars for it, and it's worth. Oh, you know, I've seen them for going for eight, maybe even nine hundred dollars now. You know. So do I carry that gun? No, I don't, because I again I would have to find 
another one in similar condition to replace it. So the gun I carry in its place is an auto ordinance 1911A1. That's about a $500 gun. That's pretty reasonably priced for a carry gun. Um, it's a 1911 just like the other one and I can go and order another one because they still make it. So you know those are some examples of when does a gun become too valuable to carry. Here's here's another example. Uh, rifles. You know when I was when I was you know getting into the gun hobby on on my own you know not just getting the 22 or the 3030 for Christmas type of deal. Uh, you could buy HK91s, Heckler and Hawk actual made HK91s. You could buy um, FNFALs. I forget what they call them. The you know, but it's the, the they were the Belgian made FALs. They weren't the knockoffs made other places. Even though I think the Argentine and Brazilian ones are superior, excellent guns, and I even like the DSA guns. But um, Anyway, the uh, you could buy the Belgian FNFAL, and that was again, if you used it for something, you could take it out. You could you could use it, and you know if you had to replace it, you could replace it with another one because you could still get it. Well, then, thanks to George H. W. Bush, we can't get those anymore. So the factory stops now making them. Now they're a collector's item, three and four thousand dollars a piece. Same thing with the German HK ninety one. Can't get them anymore. You can get clones and things that are close but you can't get the original one anymore so the original one doesn't become a gun that you take out into the woods or you rides around your pickup on the farm or or anything else it kind of becomes a collector's item and if you don't collect a lot of guys sell those and they they make some money and then buy something that they can actually use without you know destroying its, its value same thing with pythons you know that, that was another another uh it's a handgun example, but you could carry a python up into the 90s because you could always go buy another one. Now you can't buy the same pythons and you can't get the same finishes. You can get stainless steel. You can get stainless steel and like it or you can get stainless steel and not like it. You know, but you don't get the blue finishes. You don't get the nickel, the nickel finish anymore. You don't, you know, you don't get that. So if you have one of those guns, you, you don't use it and carry it every day. You just don't. Um, and one of sports that's really been impacted by this to the point where I'm not even sure it's, it's still around somewhere on some low level, I'm sure. Remember Vintage Sniper, you know, 10, 12 years ago. That was the big thing, you know. They had the Gibbs Rifle Company actually had some, you know, they had some uh, old 03A3 drill rifles that they kind of converted into 03A4s, you know, and put the Chinese scope on it so it looked like the m73 scope and all the rest of it um but using the original equipment in in that is is became foolhardy because the m84 scope which would cost you say three or four hundred dollars 20 years ago is now a 13 or 14 hundred dollar item and if you bust it you have to send it to somebody have it repaired you know, it's 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 a real problem. It's a it's an almost eighty year old optic. Well, it's a seventy something year old optic. And the same thing, you know, you get these older optics, and you get these rifles that are now not a rifle you want to take out and scratch up, or to risk scratching up, 
or risk even putting a lot of any kind of wear on because all of a sudden the original 03A4 with the original scope is now a three to five thousand dollar item you know who knew who knew so you know that sport is dying out um, even the 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 you know cheap at the time Moisen Nagant snipers uh, which were running three and four hundred dollars at the time now those are up there I can't imagine what an original SVT sniper is I mean you know you, you just start looking even the early Cold War stuff is is really just brutally expensive if you can get it you know if you can get it so vintage sniper as a CMP sport just died uh, we we had a vintage sniper program at the club I'm at it was actually pretty good um, it was run by a good guy. He was good. He got tired of it, and I think declining. You know, I just can't take that M1D out there and shoot it anymore. Um, you know, I just, I just don't want to wreck it. You know, I just don't want the scope broken, and then spend six hundred bucks to repair a scope. You know, so uh, you know, it, it kind of declined, and you know, the cost of that stuff, even a, an HK91 clone, to get the original scope on that, is now a seven. $800 item. I think friend of the podcast and I bought ours and they were around 400 bucks. That was still pretty, that was still hurt, but it didn't hurt as much as 800 bucks does today. So, you know, that's, that's another example of something becoming too valuable to use, too valuable to use. And it happens if you're a traditionalist and you have a gun collection you have to kind of look and say, hey, what can I really carry and what can I not really carry? Go from there. And speaking of old guns, um, had a discussion again with friend of the podcast about the carry handle scopes on ARs, you know, the early ARs. And, um, you know, and also sling tension and how that all affects point of impact. The, um, the early ARs had these very cool little three and four power scopes. How powerful they actually were, I don't know. But And you can buy reproductions of these. You can buy the high-end one from Brownells, which is about three bills. And then you can, I think, still find the Barska, you know, the Chinese copy. Um, and that's under 100 bucks. I think I've, I've got one that's actually new in the box, and I think it was 75 bucks. Um, Anyway, they're great scopes to put on retro ARs. Um, how do they really work and how effective are they? Well, they're not nearly as good as new scopes. And even if you buy the original Colt scopes, which were, I think they were made, some were made in the USA, some were made in Japan. Um, they're, they're good scopes. I actually have, in, in addition to the Barska, I actually have a Norinco scope, which, you know, things were just ridiculously cheap in the 90s. So I just bought it on a Lark, and it's it's quite a good scope. It's quite a good scope. I have it on a retro AR I take back and forth to my little country place, and I have it in a just a um, military, you know, 1950s weapons case, you know, jump case. And, um, you know, I took it out today and confirmed my zero on it, and it was just one one tiny click off and and i've actually had cataract surgery in between the last time i sighted it in and this time so i don't think it was the gun i don't
in my eyesight since I had uh, eye surgery. So that's what I'm really, uh, that's really, really where I'm looking at with that. Very good scope, holds at zero. What it's not really good at is if you sight it in at say 200 yards and then you put it up to three or 400 yards, will you be exactly on? Well, I don't think those hash marks and the bullet drop compensating mechanism inside were ever really all that good. You probably will get you kind of close, but it's not going to be as exact. You almost have to figure out, I think, what the what the exact hold would be by sighting sighting it in at that um, at that distance and then painting a new hash mark on there. You know, you probably probably be a good uh, probably be a pretty good project to do but um, anyway those they're good scopes they, they they actually work well but it's not the panacea and it's based on the old the old theory that I will look at something I will estimate my range I will dial the range on the bullet drop compensator and then I will shoulder and shoot uh, the Warsaw pack scopes were a lot better you actually had a range finding um, well, it's not a reticle, but it's it's a little range-finding scale inside, and you would use that, figure that up, and then you would use the uh, um, gradations on the reticle to hit the correct site. That's that's actually a lot more efficient. And nowadays, of course, we have everything from mill dots to hash marks to all kinds of other little aids, and of course the subtension trees in in. Uh, scopes for for longer range shooting and, and all that so we've evolved well 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 past these simple AR scopes but that doesn't mean that they're not effective they are still very good very effective but they really aren't as fancy as uh, as a lot of modern stuff and in fact if I were going to do a lot of shooting I would probably get a more modern scope. There's a kind of a compact scope. Put it on there. It, it obviously wouldn't look retro or look right. It would kind of be only insofar as it was kind of compact. But um, I would really go with the more modern advantages, uh, just just because that's that's probably going to make your whole life a whole lot. It would make my life a whole lot easier. Okay, sling tension. Um, you know, I was experimenting a little bit today, and with just a light, hasty sling, I did not experience any movement as far as vertical dispersion in my my uh, my rifle. Now, that may just be me. That may just be luck. Maybe that's that is. A lot of people have reported that, and that is an a pencil barrel AR-15 that has the traditional sight block, front sight uh, post and block on it. Um, you know, you're going to get some sort of movement, I think, if, especially if you put a very tight sling on it. Um, so it's just one of those things you have to, I think, individually check. Uh, I could take another AR-15 out there that's the same design, same retro design, and who knows? I, I, it could be six inches different at 200 yards. You never know. But it definitely can be a definitely can be a thing. So there, there you go. ARs, the the vintage AR though. I'll, I'll just leave leave this for walking around in the woods. It's a pleasure to use because it's so lightweight. It's powerful, and even with that sight on it, which is an imperfect sight, 
um, it really really does go so um, it's still a still a very very useful piece of kit today okay this is a follow-up question from when I talked about M1909 revolvers did Colt M1909 revolvers get into World War One and what about the Colt M1901 38 long Colt revolvers did they get in it too uh, I'll answer the second part first. The Colt Model 1901-38 Long Colt revolvers were apparently used by uh, rear echelon troops who were never going to see the front, and so, but but they needed to be armed in case they they went up near it and there was a an infiltration or breakthrough or something. Needed to be armed, but didn't need the most advanced armament, so they weren't up in the they weren't up in the front trenches. So. My understanding is yes, those were those were there, and and it's fine. I don't know that there was any recorded combat use of one. The 1909 revolvers, I imagine some went, um, but as kind of either a private purchase or um, just something that was drawn from an armory and and with a supply of cartridges and and kept. But there's no real recorded use. There was certainly no official. Um, emphasis on pushing that piece of equipment forward and, and issuing it to anyone so uh, but I'm sure that some got some got there because weapons have a funny way of getting to where they want to be and face it if you're kind of a you know early 20th century guy that you take a look at the 45 ACP you take a look at the 45 Colt and bigger is always better right so that was probably in their thinking Okay, next question. Why do traditionalists, and I guess that means me, still insist that the M1911 design holds up well to new designs? Okay, uh, I can say that very easily. Um, um, that's, that's a bad thing to say. The 1911 is a very good design because it was designed by a genius. John Browning was a genius and what part of his genius was he looked at his hand and he looked at his pistol and he formed his pistol so that it fit well in the hand and neither the human hand nor the basic form of that pistol have changed so a genius designed something to fit into the hand and it still works today a hundred and some years later it's the way it goes that's just that's just basic stuff right there um and of course you know with the the arched mainspring housing kind of helped a little bit and and um the little scallops they cut into 19 the 1911 frame to make it the 1911 a1 that seems to help a little bit i i don't really notice it i mean i notice it when i look at it when i pick it up i don't really notice it but um i'll, I'll take their word for it that it's a good thing they did they did find that you know bobbing the hammer a little bit made it a little easier on people's hands um, you know on and on so yeah they'd made a few tiny refinements to it but the basically it still fits the hand it fits the hand real well um, it John Browning did a better job than Gaston Glock did he just did Glock's I think trying to catch up because now I think they have removable back straps and a few other things but you know if you take uh, a 1911 A1, and I take the that auto ordnance one that I was talking about, um, and it's got GI plastic style grips on it. You know, it's 
it's basic and no frills but it does exactly what it's supposed to do it, it just it fits your hand well it doesn't slip around and it does not have a target pistol trigger pull it, it just simply does not but for everything else it's 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 pretty darn good so yeah hey something that was designed by genius works uh, i would say the browning high power is got many of the same attributes and it's debatable how much of that was John Browning and how much of that was another gun genius, Didonne Saive, who was the Belgian designer who, who finished the 1935 Browning High Power design and finished. He also, uh, I don't know what else he designed, but I know he did design the uh, FN 49 and then, of course, the FN FAL. Brilliant designs. So he was a genius too. So. You know, guns designed by geniuses work really well. Guns designed by people who aren't geniuses probably have some shortcomings. So, will the Army replace 5.56 with a new cartridge? Um, given my day of the wokest comments, I don't think so. Um, I don't. I don't know what they're going to do. I'm not privy to any information, but I would say that the more... I don't want to use the word diverse, but I would say that given the emphasis on recruiting people who have probably never shot before and don't really want anything to do with weapons, that 5.56 is probably the limit of what they can handle, and so they will stay with that. Uh, I think that, again, special missions, special operations, and other you know units that have some unique some need of a unique capability will probably get maybe they'll get something in six millimeter ARC or 6.8 SBC or something you know they might do that but we'll we'll see we'll see but I don't think 5.56 and the M4 platform aren't going anywhere anytime soon okay now here is another question which is which is excellent. Will polymer-cased ammo replace brass-cased ammo in military use or civilian use? Uh, here's what I think. I think definitely in military use you may see it. All they have to do is buy it. And it comes down to can it be... They're going to, first of all, they're going to test it like crazy to make sure that it's at least as good as brass. Then they're going to have to make sure that enough of it can be produced and it's going to have to be inexpensive because why would you buy something that's more expensive that doesn't have an increased the difference between a polymer cased round and a brass case round doesn't matter if they cost the same and and the bullet performs the same well why would you buy the more expensive one it just doesn't make sense to do that so they won't but if they find that there's a, and, and you know what i don't know if you're carrying a let's just say 210 round basic load we'll just say six magazines for your um, for your m4 plus one in the rifle so that gives you 210 rounds how much and if it's more expensive it's they're not going to buy it they're just not going to buy it the difference even if it's saved and, I, and you know it, it saves a quarter pound who cares nobody cares and I don't think even think it would swell for it probably would save a quarter pound maybe half a pound who knows 
but if it doesn't perform any better it's not going to get adopted if it's cheaper and just as reliable and lighter it will get bought and they can produce enough of it it will get bought it just will get bought uh, for civilian use the only prayer it's got is if it's cheaper because you can't reload it so it will be competing with <laughs> wonderfully made and you know nobody's laughing at it now but you know which would you rather buy for ten dollars let's say you can get 50 rounds of tull 556 steel cased or you can get 20 rounds of super duper polymer you know great stuff you can't reload either of them so most people are going to buy what is the most cost effective you know all of us have budgets so if you want to buy the high-end stuff you're you're welcome to do that but i think the market will drive people towards driving what's least expensive now if they can get that as cheap or cheaper then they can give the steel cased ammo a run for its money a run for its money um, and the only reason that the steel cased ammo hasn't completely taken the only reason it hasn't completely taken it over is because there are people who want to reload brass and there are people who are prejudiced against steel case they think all that Eastern European stuff is trash and they don't want to use it so um, therefore they're not going to you know they don't want to use it so they'll use brass cased ammo and there's there's other reasons I use some brass cased ammo I've used the other stuff um, you know it is what it is but for cheap range shooting ammo I'll, I'll shoot the steel stuff all day long the polymer case stuff if it's cheap or cheaper I'd, I'd give it a look but like with every new and emerging technology there's almost always some problem unforeseen problem unforeseen glitch so we'll see how that shakes out but I don't I don't think that you know 20 years from now that's that uh, brass cased ammo will be something of the past you know it won't be like pagers it won't be like you know all this other obsolete technology that's out there I think that polymer case might be an addition to the line if it's cheap enough if it shows some dramatic advantage which at this point outside of cost I don't see it offering civilian shooters so there you go well that's it for this edition of old school guns our 108th episode and again if you have any questions or comments you can uh, put them on the comments section of Podbean or you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com kbmakel at aol.com but until next time this is old school guns out <laughs>